Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. There is plenty for investors to contemplate at the moment. Many of us are in lockdown, may well be for some time, unfortunately, or again in the future also. And all the excitement of a roaring economy as things return to normal starts to be fading away. We're all feeling pretty good, I think, earlier this year when things seem to be returning to normal, but not so much anymore. Individuals and businesses are suffering in real time at the moment. Today, I'm joined by Chris Joy, the co-founder of fixed income fund manager Coolabar Capital, who's made strong recommendations about how the government and the Reserve Bank could respond to the challenges of COVID to talk about the road ahead. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me, Gemma. Chris, you write prolifically and passionately about economics and policy. You've uh, contributed so much to the public discourse on so many of these issues, and you've recommended the RBA throw more stimulus at the economy right now, given the situation we find ourselves in. I should timestamp this, by the way. It's the 11th of August, and we are deep in lockdown in Sydney and various other places around Australia also going into lockdown at the moment. Could you explain what you've been recommending and what the purpose of that is, given the current situation? Yeah, sure. So the RBA lowers the cash rate, and that's an overnight interest rate. But the RBA is also now trying to control longer-term interest rates. And the way it does that is it buys government bonds. By pushing up their price, it reduces the interest rate on five- and ten-year government bonds. And that then lowers the cost of borrowing uh, for those terms. And it also puts uh, downward pressure on the Aussie dollar because Aussie interest rates look less attractive than they otherwise would. Now, and this has been very successful. It's one of the reasons the Aussie dollar has been trading in the low 70 cents, US 70 cents range, whereas most economic models um, seem to suggest that the Aussie dollar should be trading you know, anywhere between 80 and 90 US cents. And that's crucial for helping our exporters. A low Aussie dollar makes their products much cheaper in a relative sense. And it also helps any local businesses that are competing against foreign imports. So this, is, this bond purchase program is called their QE or quantitative easing program. They've been doing it since November last year. They were the slowest central bank in the world to start doing this. Um, they were about six months behind everyone else. But it's, it's worked one, wondrously well. And I think the RBA was sceptical uh, for a while there. But it's really had a very big impact on Aussie interest rates and the Aussie dollar. Now, uh, the current bond buying program expires in September. So what I've been arguing... Uh, Jimmer, is that post-September they should continue buying these bonds, particularly given the, un- given the uncertain outlook. Uh, one thing we know about the RBA is they're terrible at forecasting. Uh, all of their forecasts for housing, inflation and jobs have been you know, way wide of the market for you know, uh, the last uh, you know, 10 or so years. And so my argument had been, listen, continue buying the bonds, keep on putting down pressure on the Aussie dollar and interest rates until we've come out of the woods, until we've got wage inflation that's running at 3 to 4% uh, 
until inflation is back in your target band and until we've vaccinated the whole population, our borders are open and we've navigated all those challenges. Now, the RBA about a year ago basically admitted that its forecasts have been terrible and it said, you know what, we're not going to do the forecasting game anymore. We'll set policy on the actual data we see. And this is known as now casting or data dependence. But when it came to the bond purchase program, uh, and I said they should buy another $100 billion post-September, um, in July they announced they were going to basically do that. So that part of the equation we got right, they said we will continue buying bonds. Um, most people thought that implied about $100 billion or more of purchases, which was really the minimum, minimum they could do. But they also announced in July that they would reduce the weekly uh, pace of their purchases. So they had been between November last year and September this year been buying bonds at $5 billion a week, and they said, we're going to lower that to $4 billion a week. And that's called a taper, Gemma. And they said, this is in July, they said, we'll lower it because we feel much more confident about the economic outlook. The unemployment rate was at 5.1%. Um, and they, they said, we're forecasting you know, very strong economic growth. Now, I pushed back against that after the event. I said, listen, I don't think you should be reducing your bond purchases. You have no, no idea what's around the corner. Um, and sure enough, their forecasts were good for about five days because the Sydney lockdown you know, dramatically increased in severity. We've had Victorian lockdown, Queensland lockdown, South Australian lockdown. And the Aussie economy is in recession right now. Uh, so over the September quarter, uh, the Aussie economy will probably shrink by about 3%. We're going to see a big, big increase in unemployment, uh, an even bigger increase in underemployment. Um, and the Delta strain that is running right across Australia um, is really going to uh, kibosh growth and act as a paralyzing influence on activity uh, across much of the country for a significant period of time. So they made this decision in July, but really we've been in lockdown since late June. Uh, so all of July will be in all of August and likely all of September in, in the nation's biggest city. So my view had been, listen, dudes, um, at their August meeting, it makes sense to defer this taper, just keep on buying bonds at $5 billion a week. Obviously, when you thought that you'd reduce the purchase pace and de facto you provide less stimulus, that was based on a set of beliefs about the Aussie economy that were extremely optimistic and which have been completely disproven by what's happened. Now, what makes this frustrating is, the RBA re revealed in its board minutes following the July meeting, they said, listen, the, the decision to go to uh, $4 billion a week versus $5 billion a week in July when basically you know, only at the start of the Sydney lockdown, things weren't that bad, that was a line ball decision. They said it was really, it could have gone either way. Well, when they met in August, the world had got a lot worse. You know, we were in a huge lockdown. Much of Australia was in lockdown. It was clear this was going to run for months. And instead, they doubled down. And this is a classic case of RBA belligerence. You know, they put a set of forecasts out there. They put a view of the world out there. And they're just stubborn. They're intellectually belligerent. They don't want to change their view. They want to keep their head stuck in the sand. So they started making up other excuses. They said, well, actually, we, you know, it's quite bizarre. And, and this is true, Jim. It wouldn't sound true if I would ordinarily say it. But the set of economic forecasts that the RBA had in July, and the new set of forecasts that they released in August, were even rosier and more optimistic than the set of forecasts they had effectively pre-lockdown. And that seems to be practical. To most people, they'd say that's practically impossible. You must have more negative forecasts about the future um, uh, you know, in August than you would have in July, given the impact of Delta and the lockdowns. Um, and I think the mistake intellectually, Gemma, the, the RBA is making 
again, it's classic RBA, is they kind of have said, so I was very bullish about growth employment and the Aussie recovery last year. And we said the unemployment rate would sort of settle at 6 to 7%. And everyone else was saying the unemployment rate would go to 10 to 12%, including the RBA. And um, the RBA sort of uh, coming into July and August has argued, well, we got the lockdowns really wrong last year. We massively overestimated the, the negative impact on growth. So we're trying to learn from that. And so we're now much more optimistic. The problem, of course, is the world has changed. This lockdown is very different to the lockdowns last year. It's likely to be longer. Um, and businesses, we don't have JobKeeper. So we don't have massive amounts of cash being injected into the system. Um, we have different uh, financial support measures, which are more parsimonious, which are not as generous. And I'm convinced that business will come out of this lockdown more slowly than it did the last lockdown. It's not to say that the, the future next year is not optimistic. I think you know we have every reason to be optimistic. But I think that the RBA, if it was prudent, if it was sensible, if it was rational... There's no case for withdrawing stimulus right now, and that's basically what they've started to do. Thank you so much for that explanation. You've actually answered like half my questions already, <laughs> but it's um, it's a fabulous explanation. I think your point about uh, exchange rates is really interesting. We had uh, NAB's forecast uh, or FX forecasters on earlier this year, and they were predicting in the early 80 cent range. They had at the time just won an award for being the best uh, FX forecasters out of a group of 60 gave themselves a prize. Um, but as, as you say, the, uh, the impact of monetary stimulus has been super effective on that front. For the average person, and I find this an interesting challenge to explain to a lot of investors, if you have cash deposits, uh, the impact of the RBA's actions is very significant. Obviously, you are getting next to nothing on your cash. For borrowers, the impact is also very significant and very positive. We saw the economy come roaring back, and you've made the point, obviously, we're in a different world now. Things are much more complicated. Do you think things will return to normal relatively quickly if we can get the vaccination plans underway? I I will make the note you know, vaccination supply is still a massive issue in Australia and we do need more supply in order to get everybody vaccinated. The just get vaccinated thing works if you've got supply. But let's say end of the year, which seems to be somewhat more realistic, thoughts about economic activity returning to normal or are you concerned about business confidence and consumer confidence really affecting that? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I think in March last year, we were one of the few parties. Um, I don't know if there were any actually at that time. We were saying we're going to get vaccines. They're going to be effective and they'll start distributing by the end of the year. And that, that's what happened. And um, we've actually got you know, quite remarkable vaccine efficacy with Pfizer, Moderna and AstraZeneca um, is you know, similarly effective against hospitalisation, severe disease and death. So the vaccines are a bit of a panacea. We're going to be... Um, I think breaking the supply bottlenecks. I mean, that's that's happening before our eyes. We've got, um, I think, uh, a million doses of Moderna coming in. Uh, the Pfizer supply pipeline um, is ramping up big time right now. This is, you know, I think $55 million, 55 million, sorry, doses of AstraZeneca that people are increasingly are using now that they realise there's only a one in one million chance of something going wrong. Um, Excuse me, and I think that um, uh, the prime minister has secured 
now 85 million dollar 85 million doses sorry, of um, Pfizer for next year which will be booster doses I think what we're seeing around the world is a few things so I think the the vaccine rates have been much higher than pretty much anyone thought you got to you know consider that in countries like Israel Canada UK uh, as just a few examples, and there are many others that are right up there. Within six months, these guys have vaccinated 70% of their entire population. Now, remember, in most countries, I'm actually just going to pull up a chart on this, so I've got the data in front of me. Um, in most countries, you can't, haven't been able to get vaccinated uh, if you're under the age of 18. Now, in the US, you can get vaccinated with Pfizer down to the age of 12, and I believe we're going to try and do something, well, that, actually, that is true um, now uh, in Australia. And, um, and actually, yeah, so I've got these stats here. So we're now sitting in August. We started vaccinating people globally in January, really, with gusto. Canada's you know, given a first jab to 72% of all people, including children. Uh, Spain's at 71%. The United Kingdom's at 69%. Uh, France and Italy are at 66%. What that means, Gemma, crucially, if you've done 70% of your total population, you've done about 90% of adults. And I think you'll see eventually very high vaccination rates amongst kids. And we know that the, the vaccines and the boosters are, are effective. So what that, I think, does is it gives us great confidence about the future, that once vaccine coverage is pervasive, we will open borders and life will go back to normal again. Um, and we'll just have to learn to live with COVID. I mean, it's a very severe ailment. But equally, the, the vaccines are, are, are very effective. And I think you're only going to see higher vaccines, notwithstanding that we're going to get mutations that potentially could be vaccine resistant. I think particularly with the so-called um, messenger RNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, they'll be able to iterate the, the vaccines very quickly as well. So, so the, the, the future is, is I think, uh, you know, prosperous. Uh, and I expect to see very strong growth next year, similar to the very strong growth we've had this year prior to the lockdowns. But I will say that until we, we get to that point, you know, the, the outlook is extremely patchy because we don't have vaccine coverage and we're effectively crushing business activity and household activity um, until we get to herd immunity. Now, so what are the numbers? The Doty Institute wants to get 70% of people vaccinated, which is 90% of adults. We modelled this uh, a few months ago and we said that on our modelling, that was achievable in Australia by January and February, conservatively. We, we made very clear we thought we could do it by the end of the year. I think in New South Wales, we've already given a first jab to more than 50% of people, which is amazing. Um, and we're doing, I think, 5% of the state a week for first jabs. So the and I think somebody told me that Australia actually now has the fastest rate of per capita vaccinations anywhere in the developed world. I'm not sure if that's 100% correct, but we, we are ramping up very aggressively. And I think we'll feel very different about um, our vaccination experience in, in six months. I think at the end of this year, people will say, okay, we, we started slow, but gee whiz, did we move quickly? And I think you'll see us catch up really well to the rest of the world. And I don't, th I don't think we'll see much vaccine hesitancy or resistance, Gemma. Um, and perversely, the lockdowns are a tremendous Trojan horse to encourage people to get vaccinated. So I have, I have kind of three views of the world effectively. Um, let, let, kind of let's break this down into three phases. The first phase is right now when we're in lockdown, pre-cured immunity, a huge amount of uncertainty, 
And that's pretty shit is the bottom line. Like the outlook's bad. Um, we're seeing a huge amount of fiscal stimulus. The RBA should be doing more. It's it's stubborn, recalcitrant, belligerent, um, you know, intellectually, they're, they're this, these ivory tower guys have got their head in the sand and it's a freaking joke. They should be doing more. They can do more. It's costless. They can absolutely do more with zero cost, but they're choosing not to. Whatever. They're getting it wrong, so be it. And the next three months are going to be tough. A lot of jobs are going to be lost. There's going to be a lot of underemployment. There's going to be a lot of businesses that fail, and there's going to be a lot of scarring. But by you know, as we head towards that 70% threshold and as we head towards the end of the year, what's going to happen? We're going to start opening back up internally. So we'll hopefully come out of lockdowns. We won't, we'll learn to live with the virus, um, and we'll do what is happening across, say, you know, the UK. Um, and we'll, we'll just open right back up. And I think you'll get a surge in activity, which is good. Um, I do think it won't be as fast as what we saw previously because you're still going to have problems of outbreaks and people being close contacts and therefore being immobilised and having to quarantine if they're a close contract, contact. So I think it'll be a stop start. Next six months, or let's say the next three months are very grim. The next three months after that are probably pretty good, albeit with some setbacks. That takes us into the end of the year. Uh, by the end of the year, we're coming up to like 90% of adults and, and, and probably closer to 80% of the population being fully vaccinated. And, and we'll be in a very, very strong position. And that will only improve as we move into next year. But then something interesting happens. Uh, we have an, a federal election in March or May. And I think post the federal election, we will have the borders open. The borders open back up. Back up and I think that brings with it interesting challenges, Gemma, because when the borders open back up, a few things will happen. Firstly, Australians will start travelling, and that means we take all that cash, and rather than spending it domestically, we're going to be spending it overseas. And Australians spend much more on tourism overseas than we do domestically, and the economy has got a bit of a tailwind from that, that surge in domestic spending. The second thing that will, ha- that will happen, which will be positive for the economy, will be we'll get a surge in um, uh, students coming back to Australia and economic migrants. And I think you're going to see massive immigration over the next few years, which will be great for the economy. However, it will be deflationary or put downward pressure on wages growth. I think you'll see wages tick up at some point prior to opening up. There are wage pressures because the economy is closed and we can't get that, that foreign labour into the country. And we've had, a, we've had about 334,000 foreigners who used to work in Australia leave over the last year. So we've had an exodus of foreign workers and they haven't been replaced and that's what's creating the labour shortages. So I think what that means for the RBA is that the RBA is going to have time on its side once the economy opens up because I think you're going to see these deflationary pressures re-emerge. Um, there won't be a problem with wages growth. There won't be a problem with inflation. And I think the idea is, the, the RBA's idea that it won't be raising rates until you know, circa the second half of 2023 or 2024 is probably a reasonable proposition. Eventually, I think into next year, I think the world goes back to normal. And frankly, we have the, the age-old problems of trying to create a, enough growth to employ the labour that exists and to utilise the excess capacity or the slack in the economy. And I think we go back to the, the perennial challenges of getting up or, or fostering the innovation, the entrepreneurship, the productivity to power growth. One thing that I'm very optimistic about is trying to create an immigration-led boom. I think you'll see the wonder down under. We've always been, we are the most multicultural country in the OECD. So about 30% of the people living in Australia weren't born in Australia. And, um, and I think you'll see more of that. And that, that has historically been a massive driver of, of growth. And, and that, for me, is the most prospective uh, lever that we can bring to bear to power prosperity in the next few years. That's a really 
interesting summary of the year ahead. I'm I'm fascinated by it. I'm really interested about your ideas on immigration because I was previously of the view that we would have uh, an immigration boom absolutely when lockdowns ended and and COVID uh, had started to abate somewhat. And then after a year and a half of closed borders, I wondered if a lot of people coming to Australia would be concerned that they'd be locked in. They wouldn't be able to see their families anymore and suddenly it became much less attractive. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Part of the challenge with immigration leads into my next question, which is for many regular people, the most obvious effect of monetary stimulus being super low interest rates has been rapidly rising house prices. And you've done an incredible job of predicting house prices when many people were feeling that they'd fall dramatically last year and the opposite happened. Uh, You saw that coming and talked about it a fair bit. Do you see that continuing uh, given your your views on what's going to play out for the rest of the year and then into next year? Yeah, generally I'm very bullish on house prices until the RBA uh, lifts interest rates, which is probably a 2023-2024 prospect. So, yeah, I remain very bullish on the housing market. There is some nuance, though, associated with that view. There's some wrinkles that we need to just study. The first wrinkle is that the RBA and APRA will start to throw sand in the wheels of the housing market momentum later this year. So they're going to make it harder and harder for banks to provide loans. Um, They'll probably put debt-to-income ratio limits um, on on borrowers, so to avoid borrowers taking out loans that represent in dollar terms too much of of an imposition vis-a-vis their income levels. Um, I think we'll see the RBA and APRA require the banks to lift what they call their serviceability test, the interest rates they assume that um, you have to pay. Uh, we think the RBA uh, and the APRA or the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, the banking regulator, um, will, will, they're, they're all sitting around five, five and a quarter percent, those, those interest rate assumptions. I think they can chisel those up a bit. And what that will do is it will reduce uh, borrowers' purchasing power. They might also look at some LVR caps. They could look at higher risk weights or basically force the banks to hold more capital against certain types of loans to make those loans less attractive to banks to in turn, I guess, um, uh, force up interest rates on those banks, uh, sorry, on those products. So I think that the housing market in the second half of the year does face some headwinds, but you know, we expected 10 to 15% house price growth this year, all the way back in March 2020, um, and that's what we're getting. Um, and I think house prices will continue to rise, um, albeit at, a, at a, you know, a slowly decelerating pace as these headwinds uh, start to grip um, in terms of what are known as the so-called macro prudential constraints on bank lending. So that's one um, particular headwind that we're focused on. I think the other headwind is that mortgage rates should gradually climb. Um, The banks borrowed $188 billion off the RBA during the COVID crisis, and they only had to pay the RBA 0.1% for this money. It was three-year money, so the RBA lent that money for three years to the banks. They pay 0.1% per annum, and it allowed the banks to offer lots of really cheap fixed-rate loans. Eventually, over the next three years, the banks will have to repay that money. They'll replace it with more expensive loans that they'll borrow from people like me in the wholesale market. So they'll go to the global financial market, CBA, ANZ, NABWA, Westpac, and, and borrow folks like me, and they'll pay us higher interest rates, which means means that in turn they have to charge their mortgage borrowers higher interest rates. And so we've thought this for a while, that you know, mortgage rates and particularly fixed rate loans uh, will increase gradually over time. So that will be another headwind. Um, and then 
ultimately, at some point, people will start focusing on the RBA lifting the cash rate. I think when the RBA lifts the cash rate by 100 basis points, you'll see house prices fall by 10 to 20%. Um, so that's kind of 23, 24. But I think you'll see some good house price growth between now and then. And I think that um, uh, one final tailwind is the opening of borders. Well, it's actually a tailwind and a headwind. I think the opening of borders will do two things. It'll mean that there'll be less Australians who are splurging on lifestyle properties. So farms, beach houses. So there'll be a little bit less demand for those sorts of assets. But on the other hand, I think you'll see a flood of overseas migrants into Australia that will bring capital with them. And I think you'll see the foreign bid for Aussie property um, improve significantly. Uh, And potentially that thing's a wash or or ultimately you might see... um, some net uh, excess demand from from foreigners and students coming into Australia that might not have otherwise been there um, during the um, the period in which we've had closed borders. So I'm, I'm bullish on housing. I do think there's a correction like the one we had in uh, between 2017 and 2019 when prices fall 10%, and we successfully predicted that in early 2017. Um, I think we'll get another one of those corrections. I think it'll be bigger, particularly if the RBA lifts rates 100 basis points. Um, so I think it'll be more like 10 to 20%. Um, but, but I think we're a couple of years away from that. A lot of our listeners will be paying very close attention to those views uh, when you've got a track record on house prices, and not a lot of us do, actually. Uh, I think the average person thinks house prices always go up. It, um, it's an interesting one to follow. We're all passionate about it. Equity markets have also bounced back, and I'm finding this fascinating at the moment. Uh, we're in the middle of reporting season, lots going on. ASX 200 is at record highs. Uh, Certainly the US markets are well above their highs now. They're incredible. Oh, they're pre-COVID highs. Anyway, assuming JobKeeper payments don't return, and that is an interesting one to state because we're a few days before this will be published and uh, and there may be further fiscal stimulus coming. Uh, Do you think equity markets are somewhat ahead of themselves at this point, given the amount of stimulus that has been thrown uh, at them by the RBA and a little bit by the government? No, I think the equity markets are pricing in. So if you think about what is an equity, an equity is, is an ownership interest in a company. Um, so that's, you know, hence why we call them shares. And that company has a set of cash flow. So it's, you know, future expected profits. And when we value those equities, we're just saying, okay, we recognise and can identify that future profit stream. Uh, but we need to value it in today's terms. We need to value BHP's earnings over the next 10, 20 years, but bring it back to today's terms. And to do that, we need to you know, basically estimate the net present value of those cash flows using something called a discount rate. And the discount rate is just what the market thinks the long-term uh, RBA cash rate will be, plus a risk premium for the company in question. Uh, now, if you increase the, the long-term risk-free rate, all equity prices have to fall because the discount rate has increased. Right? So that reduces the, the present value of those cash flows. If you reduce that discount rate because you know, the central banks of the world uh, start buying 10-year government bonds and they bid up at their price and they reduce the 10-year government bond interest rate, which is that's normally the variable that the share market uses. That's their, their plug and play sort of their proxy or benchmark for the the 10-year risk-free discount rate is the yield on the 10-year government bond. And so as that moves up and down, it has a very, very direct and causal transmission into equity prices. So, you know, quantitative easing and bond buying has been very equity-friendly. Our view has been that the central banks of the world 
whilst they'll, they'll eventually withdraw the stimulus, they'll be erring on the side of doing so cautiously and slowly over a prolonged period of time. And that's what's you know, we, the ECB is not tapering. Uh, the Bank of England uh, is only just right now sort of uh, entertaining the idea of tapering. The Fed has not even started tapering yet. The RBA has got a bit ahead of itself stupidly and it starts to taper in September. But, but the long and the short of it is these guys are going to be running that QE all the way through next year. And if there's any setbacks like the lockdowns we've had or Delta um, or more vaccine-resistant strains emerging, then it's just going to be more of the same. And that's positive, not negative for equities. So for equities, it's kind of a win-win trade. On the one hand, you know, they know the shocks are temporary, but on the other hand, uh, they're getting a lot of fiscal stimulus whenever we get these shocks. Uh, and then the central banks are generally responsive. Again, in Australia, the RBA has been resistant. But the truth is it's still buying $5 billion a week through to September, and then it'll be buying $4 billion a week. It's still providing a hell of a lot of stimulus. So I think equities are right to price in as much of this uh, public policy stimulus as they want. I think the risk for equities is if and when uh, those discount rates, those 10-year government bond yields start climbing again. And what could be the catalyst for them to climb again? Well, one would definitely be the reduction and tapering of bond purchases over time. So that will definitely put upward pressure on those yields and downward pressure on equities. But we don't know when that's going to be. So I think the equity market's adopting a wait-and-see approach. Uh, we did see a curtain raiser for this was the experience in 2018. The Fed started hiking rates in late 2017 and uh, 2018, and the 10-year government bond yield went up to about 3.25%, and US equities fell 20% because of the increase in the discount rate of a 10-year government bond yield. Um, if we get any serious inflation pressures next year, this is something to keep an eye on. I do think I haven't been worried about inflation in 2021. We are focused on inflation over the medium term. And if those inflation pressures start to materialise because potentially uh, fiscal policy and monetary policy has overstimulated, which is not impossible, then, um, then what we could see is those 10-year government bond yields really start to jump. There was, again, a, re a dress rehearsal for this in February. Um, here in Australia and the US, the 10-year government bond yields jumped from like below 1% to 1.7%, and equities got uh, or took a bit of a bath, and that, that's absolutely possible again. So I think... The outlook for equities really hinges on where those discount rates are going, and that hinges in turn on central bank policy, which in turn is going to be driven by inflation. So I think all roads lead to watch wages growth in the US. Um, if wages growth starts bubbling, uh, bubbling, bubbling above uh, you know, 35 to 4%, that will be a big driver, I think, of uh, long rates. And, uh, yeah, long rates are super important for equities. I think equities can be a little bit uh, insensitive to changes in uh, 10 year yields initially, but once those yields start grinding seriously higher, then I think equity investors start repricing downwards their stocks. We're covering all the important things for our investors. Your specialty is bond market, so I've left the best for last for you. What are your thoughts on the effect of further stimulus on bond markets? What should investors be looking out for? Uh, a lot of investors, you'd be aware, have been ambivalent about fixed income markets for a long time with rates at such a low level. So what should they start to be looking for now? Yeah, I think um, it's actually very complex because there's probably a bit of a paucity of opportunity. I mean, we, we trade more or less most of the subsidiary asset classes in the bond market. So we trade government bonds, we trade bank bonds, we trade corporate bonds, we trade hybrids, and we trade them in Aussie dollars, US dollars and euros. Um, and so um, for us... There's kind of a few opportunities. One is 
in the new issue market, so every time a bond is brought to market, there's normally a deal every day. It's very different to equities. In equities, you get an IPO maybe, I don't know, a couple of times a month. We get new billion-dollar bond issues every single day. Um, they tend to come with concessions or mispricings. Um, basically, they, they can consistently come cheap and we can pick up that, that opportunity. But you need to be, I guess, very sophisticated, large and active to be able to do that. So the new bond issue market is exciting. Then across the sectors, I mean, the corporate bond market is, I think, singularly unexciting. Uh, the spreads that you get paid above the cash rate are very, very skinny. So that's not really of interest to us. Um, we think the hybrid market is interesting. So for five-year hybrids issued by the major banks, they're currently paying you a spread above cash of about 260 basis points or 2.6% above cash. Um, that's where they were pre-COVID. And it's a lot more than you used to get in hybrids, say, in 2014. So back in 2014, major bank hybrids were paying about 2.3% above cash. Uh, and in 2007, they were paying about 1.25% above cash. So on a relative basis, the banks have become much, much safer. They're using much less leverage. They've sold their non-core businesses. They're far more conservative, uh, radically more risk-averse, as you would know, in terms of the compliance burden you bear, Jim, uh, um, at NAB. And, and that means for fixed income investors, they're much safer. And that in turn means we don't need to necessarily get as high a rate of return from their securities as we might have in the past. But, um, but those hybrid securities are kind of bobbing around where they were pre-COVID, which is a bit of an anomaly. So if we move up and down the capital structure, uh, you know, bank subordinated bonds uh, are trading at levels that are low. The spreads on those subordinated bonds, which sits, a subordinated bond sits between a, a major bank senior bond and their hybrids and their capital structure on the capital stack. So if CBA were to go bust, the equity would wear the first amount of risk, then the hybrids, then the subordinated bonds, then the senior bonds. But anyway, the spreads on subordinated bonds are uh, not especially enticing right now. They're the, the lowest they've been since 2007. They're, they're higher than they were in 2007, substantially higher, but they're, they're, they're more expensive than they've been since 2007. And the senior bonds are even worse. Uh, their spreads are also the lowest they've been since 2007. And they're actually, they're not far from the 2007 levels. So we're not particularly thrilled about senior bonds. We don't like subordinated bonds. We do, we do think hybrids offer pretty good value right now. We're seeing great value in, in US dollar and euro credit. So we trade Aussie bank bonds in US dollars and euros, and we trade banks uh, who are issuing uh, securities in that, those markets like a, a UBS or a um, Goldman Sachs or a JP Morgan. Um, so we're, we're trading $150 million a day typically, up to 100 times a day in Aussie dollars, US dollars and euros. And so we're seeing tons of opportunity in, in US uh, dollars and euros, mainly because some of the distortions that exist in the Aussie market, um, the main distortion is that the RBA lent this $188 billion to the bank. So what do they do? They didn't money, need money, so they stopped issuing bonds and their bonds became very expensive. We owned, I owned $2.25 billion worth of major bank senior bonds up until about August last year, but the spread became very, very uh, tight and uh, we sold all that paper and, and went into other parts of the market. So there are opportunities. One, one space we do like are the state government bonds. Um, the RBA is buying a billion dollars a week of state government bonds. They're not buying you know, bank senior paper or anything else. And yet their spreads are back at circa 2019 levels and they're actually um, higher than they were between 2015 and, and 2018. Uh, despite the fact that the RBA is buying a billion dollars of this paper every week. So we like those spreads. I'm in a bit of a, a, bit of a battle with the New South Wales government. Uh, right now, they, they uh, had proposed to issue about 20 to $40 billion of extra debt um, to punt on the equities market. 
New South, New South Wales wanted to turn its balance sheet into a big leverage hedge fund. We lend money to all the state governments and, and on a, an ESG or an environmental, social and governance basis, we require state uh, governments when we lend money to them to behave very responsibly, ethically uh, and not to be reckless with that money. And, and the idea of a, a New South Wales borrowing $20 billion of taxpayers' money to gamble on the stock market is completely absurd. It's never been done before. Uh, and so we are bringing a lot of pressure to bear to stop them doing that. Assuming they don't do that, then that will be very good for those bonds and, and we're happy to hold them as a result. Um, I, I would say the only other thing I'd say is that you've got a choice between you take your interest rate in fixed income on a floating basis or a fixed basis so think about it as like the difference between a fixed rate mortgage and a floating rate mortgage, a variable rate mortgage. Um, so you could buy a bond that pays you fixed interest, like a fixed 5% interest rate for five years, or you could pay a, buy a bond that might pay you 5% today, but the interest rate will move up and down with uh, movements in the RBA cash rate, uh, and that's called a floating rate note. And um, our preference, well, we're pretty ambivalent actually between fixed and floating right now. We offer solutions that are fixed and solutions that are floating in our funds. But I think that um, long-term, there is significant interest rate risk out there. Interest rates could increase significantly. That would mean that fixed-rate bonds, their prices fall, so their yields would improve, whereas floating-rate bonds, uh, their interest rates would lift, but their price would not be changed. So that's called uh, interest rate duration risk, and I think that that's something to be mindful of. I'm not too worried about it at all over the next 12 months. Um, I'm quite comfortable with interest rate duration risk, but it is something to be cautious about over the next um, three to five years. That's an extraordinary summary of all the major issues to think about in credit and fixed income. Uh, I think for most of our investors, a, uh, a bit of professional help certainly helps with that uh, with that field. Chris, you guys at Cooler Bar produce a lot of great content. You've got a number of products that people might be interested in. If they want to find out more, where should they go? Yeah, so we, um, uh, I think, have a lot of information on our website, which is coolerbarcapital.com. Uh, so you can read about our content there, our research, and of course our solutions. I also write um, every week for Livewire, great website, um, and you can log in there for free and read all of my research. Uh, you can also go to my LinkedIn page. You can follow me on Twitter at, at cjoye. Um, and the final point I'd make is we have recently launched an ETF uh, called FIXD or Fixed, um, and you can have a look about or look at that ETF on our website or on the exchange, you should be able to access it through your broker. Obviously, I can't provide any personal financial advice to anyone, so please note that this is all general information um, and you should speak to a financial advisor if if you want any uh, specific product recommendations. Oh, it's very good of you to add the disclaimer. We've got one at the beginning and the end as well, so (laughs) everybody would be... uh hopefully getting advice if they need it. Chris Joy from Coolabar Capital, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Gemma. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We receive some great feedback. We love getting your questions. We love hearing about topics you'd like to know more about. So please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to hearing from you or talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.